Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies. Matt, what's up, buddy? Uh, not much. Just doing the summer solstice thing, I guess. We got the longest days of the year going on right now, right? Yeah. How how late does uh, the sun stay out uh, in your part of the world right now? We were pushing 9 p.m. on Friday, which I think was the official solstice. I was uh, jogging around in Central Park this afternoon. Because that's cliche New York I know, activity. Because yeah. that's something we can do out here when it's uh, 85 degrees outside. And uh, yeah, I was just like overcome by the sudden feeling of summerness. People barbecuing and people laid out and having parties. And uh, I was like, ah, oh, yes, finally it feels like summertime. When well, I mean, we're almost a freaking July, but I started to actually really get that summertime feeling in the city. Yeah, and now it's just going to get really, really hot and humid for you, right? The, the garbage, the stink will just uh, emanate throughout the land. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess I shouldn't, sp- I, I, I should, you know hold off on talking about this since I have never actually experienced a full summer in New York before, but I'm not the kind of person who really gets overwhelmed by humidity. Really bitter cold, I find to be much more unpleasant than sticky humidity. Yeah. But maybe I'll change my tune here in the dog days once (laughs) August rolls around. I mean, I moved here just about a year ago. I moved in here in late August of last year, so I think I missed the really Mm -hmm. hardcore summertime. So we'll we'll see what it's like when I'm on the subway in the middle of August and there's no air conditioning, and then we'll check in in further editions of We Like Weather. (laughs) Um, Matt, today we were talking about two big-ass movies, uh, Incredibles 2 and Jurassic Park 5, colon, Fallen Kingdom. Yeah, um, this this new colonizing of these uh, this this new colonizing of the Jurassic Park movie it doesn't seem quite as elegant as when uh, Ghost Protocol came along and did that uh, ten years ago, does it? <laughs> Eight I mean, that, that's sort of revisionist history, you know. A lot of people made fun of Ghost Protocol, the name, but when the movie was so goddamn good, that's fair. I was always on board, but yes, maybe there was a lot of some people who thought it was pretty silly. You have to imagine that there's so much time spent. In Hollywood or, you know, in production studios, just discussing what their naming conventions are going to be for these franchises, right? Like, just think about these discussions because, you know, people are on different sides of the coin here. Some people, I'm sure there's traditionalists saying, like, just give the numbers. The numbers are fine. That's it. We will go with that. And then, but once colonizing has happened. I'm glad that we're making that a thing. I don't think colonizing is a real (laughs) thing, but I'm glad we're making it into one. I don't know. I sort of prefer what the Fast and Furious franchise has done, which is just do sort of silly, punny things with, with each of their new titles. Where, where do you stand? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, everything they do is proper. <laughs> um, but yeah, but in their defense, they were doing it from the beginning. I mean, the second film, which is, granted, the worst Fast and Furious film, was mm-hmm. infamously Too Fast, Too Furious. So yes, they were already rocking <laughs> this idea from the very beginning. So it makes sense that by the time we get to eight, it would be the fate of the Furious. We haven't been hearing many rumblings about the new the ninth Fast and Furious film, have we? Do you think it's because The Rock is just so goddamn busy and because they're t- they're doing this spinoff thing and because he and Vin Diesel aren't each other's biggest fans at the moment? I mean, I feel like by this point we should have had some casting announcements or something, right? Well, there was a trailer. For, for Fast and Furious 9? Yeah. I'm not familiar with what you speak. Yeah, I saw it um, a couple months ago. It was bizarre because we were like, I don't think they even started filming. But there was a, maybe I'm crazy here. I don't know. This is not the time to get into Fast and Furious stuff. We'll, we'll we'll reconvene on this, but I did see a trailer. For, it was like this is like twenty months early. This is insane. Was it in some sort of fever dream you had at some point? I could have I, I could have dreamt it for sure. I've woken up from from a few of those in my day. <laughs> All right, Matt, we're gonna start, I believe, with Incredibles two, and then we'll get into 
Jurassic Park, correct? If we must. Incredibles 2, 14 years after the original Incredibles. Well, your screening, did you get a little disclaimer from the cast yeah. at the beginning? Like, thanks for waiting 14 years? I didn't. So <laughs> this disclaimer very is super odd. earnest and like very, they're apolo- it's very apologetic. Like the, yeah. Apparently, I didn't know people were so on Pixar and getting mad at Pixar for having this, this long gap between sequels. The, do you have any inside info on like what's behind this? None whatsoever. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what motivated this. I am definitely somebody who, you know, loving The Incredibles as much as I do and feeling like it was the most natural fit for an obvious sequel, have definitely wanted an Incredibles 2 for many, many years and wish it hadn't taken this long, but I certainly wasn't holding anybody accountable. You know, Brad Bird's a busy guy. Yeah. They were going to do it without him. And it just, I, I just have never seen a studio apologize in this way for making us wait for so long. Especially because, like, the... Um... The audience, like, the, is a kid's movie, and anyone, like, the targeted audience for this movie was not born when the first one came out. There's no one to apologize to. I guess parents whose kids loved it and then have been asking their parents every day for the last 14 years <laughs> when the new Incredibles is coming out. It was just, it was very strange, because it was the cast members as themselves. It was Craig T. Nelson and Holly Hunter and Samuel Jackson especially, earnestly appealing straight to the camera and saying thanks for sticking with us for all these it's like we're already in the theater guys like you've i mean we've already paid to be here maybe maybe you should have like put this at the beginning of i don't know coco or something say hey guys don't forget incredibles is coming up next year and we're sorry that it took this long but please show up next summer for incredibles 2 it was weird to be apologized to once i've already shown up making the voice actors the ones to apologize as well is pretty weird they didn't do anything wrong no i'm sure they probably would have loved the paycheck yeah, it should, yeah, it should really be Brad Bird being like, "Hey, I'm sorry, I had to go. I had to go do Ghost Protocol in Tomorrowland over the well, last." Well, it should have been years. Brad Bird apologizing for tomorrow. For Tomorrowland, yes, there you go. <laughs> Way more apt. Matt, I gotta be honest with you. I, I'm not the biggest Incredibles guy. Really? Yeah, I, I think I've only that seen a couple, a few times. Yeah, it's surprising. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's just not one of my preferred. Pixar films. Obviously, I like it, and it's it's really well done, and it's fun, and it's there's a reason that it's so well regarded. Given Pixar's sort of hit and miss last decade, and the fact that I wasn't a huge Incredibles one guy, I, I you know I wasn't as stoked for this movie as I as I thought I maybe would be. Um, but I think you were, were you were on a different page. You were super stoked for this, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like for many years we talked about this stuff, and we were very much of the mindset that Pixar could pretty much do no wrong and that they were kind of bulletproof. And then, you know, films like uh, Cars came along and that eventually Brave and Cars 2 and Monsters University, you know, like the the seams started to show in this um, in this bulletproof brand. And I, I feel like I was still remaining relatively vigilant, like kind of gritting my teeth and still being a company man, where you started to kind of like... Uh, hop off the train right around that point and it, it seems like you 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 felt kind of burned by the drop off the the precipitous drop off in quality yeah yeah and i um i mean remember i remember vividly we we were supposed to talk about cars too like we had a date we had a podcast date to talk about cars too <laughs> i went and sat through it only to show up for the podcast to hear you say uh, hey, Matt, I, I stood up and I walked out. I didn't yeah. even stay for the whole thing. <laughs> I thought it was that bad. I and I feel it. like that was a turning point for you with this with this studio, right? Yeah, I mean, every every person grows up and eventually realizes, you know, their <laughs> heroes are fallible <laughs> and they're not bulletproof. Um, no, I mean, I, I think I just realized that Pixar could do wrong and to approach every movie uh, in a vacuum, realize that it's a fucking Disney money-making scheme. And I, I loved 
when they weren't doing so many sequels, right? Yeah. I'm not even the biggest uh, Inside Out guy, but like that movie's obviously better than a lot of the ones that came, you know, recently before that. But Coco, I think, is their best movie in a decade, probably, right? I would agree with that. T- to answer your earlier question, though. Yes, to me, The Incredibles, which is their sixth film, is top five Pixar. Maybe it might be worth us kind of like looking over this list as we have this conversation so that perhaps we could maybe go about ranking our top five at the end of this conversation. You just just type in a list of Pixar films into Wikipedia and you'll see the 20 films listed. And Matt, I know how to Google. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just telling you what I'm looking at so we could be literally be on the same page. But I think The Incredibles is significant because I think it is one of their greatest achievements. But it came right, it was the last film they made before their immaculate run ended, which is, I believe, Cars was like the beginning of some level of mediocrity that we didn't expect from them. I think Cars was like the first sort of inkling of that. And then uh, they sort of found their footing again. And then (laughs) Cars 2 was like a really, really dramatic drop off, followed by Brave, followed by Monsters University, three of their worst films. And they rebound a little bit with Inside Out and then The Good Dinosaur, pretty bad. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of people forget that movie even exists. Yeah. And then you get Finding Dory, which is, I, I feel, a pretty inferior sequel, but quietly like one of the top three highest grossing animated films of all time like that was yep. the biggest hit of 20 it was the biggest hit film of 2016 people forget about that um and then cars 3 comes along and it's like boy you guys are just gonna and, and that's just proof that like lassiter just gonna push this particular trilogy through no matter what no matter how many people mm-hmm. are telling him to stop and how many how many of us are saying we're not interested he's like nope sorry it's a trilogy i've always i've always intended it to be a trilogy and, and then coco comes along and it, i feel that's a big that's a very important rebound for them uh, to it's, remind us like that the magic is still there and that the writing can still be of a certain level of quality. But we're at a point now where there is enough, you know, quote unquote, weak Pixar movies where I think you have every right to be a little bit skeptical with everyone that comes along, especially, as you said, when it is a sequel. Three of the four films they've made over the last five years have been sequels. So that's a little troubling. And apparently what's coming up next is Toy Story 4, which is a sequel to a perfect trilogy that does not need a fourth film it's yeah it it it, it demands that there aren't any there should not be any more films like it's pretty fucked up that they're they're doing it It right could not be a more perfect end to that story although that being said i guess i probably said the same thing after toy story 2 and toy story 3 i think might be the best of those three i'm prepared to eat my words on that but i I think that is a perfect trilogy and it terrifies me that that we're going back to that well again and there are uh no more announced films after toy story 4 uh, now that we're looking at it on the same page on on Wikipedia. Nothing official, plus John Lasseter is now officially out and Pete Docter is in. So we're mm-hmm. in the midst of an enormous shakeup. Yeah. Uh, at the top of the Pixar food chain. And we don't need to dedicate any time to talking about the whole John Laster thing in this particular podcast. But I do think it's significant that they are going through a serious existential crisis right now mm-hmm. at the top levels of this company. So anyway, here, here comes Incredibles 2, 14 years in the making, after Brad Bird has proven he can do live action and then proven he also can fail <laughs> wildly. <laughs> like He's basically run this, he run the, ran the spectrum of, while, of live action over the course of two films. Yeah. And one could make the argument that he was licking his wounds and going back to 
make another incredible going back to Pixar to make another Incredibles film as a way of atoning for Tomorrowland. Andrew Stanton kind of did the same thing after uh, John Carter, right? Yeah, he did the exact same thing. Yeah, he went back and did Finding Dory, which I said, like I said, was a huge runaway success. But I don't know. I, I, to me, it doesn't feel like this is really Brad Bird apologizing for anything. I kind of feel like Tomorrowland, which is a film that I think is deeply flawed, is still a film that Brad Bird kind of stands behind. I mean, Brad Bird's history is in animation. You know, it's the outliers are the are the live action thing. So it's not like. It, you know, it, it's not like you're going from mo- film to TV or something, right? Like, it, it's not like a demotion to do animation. Right. Um, it's still the big league. So, uh, yeah, th- there's nothing he should be embarrassed about. Or it's not like he's, you know, tail tucked between his legs. Um, although it is a little, I suppose, disappointing that it's not an original uh, idea. It's going back to the well. It, it's a sequel. I mean, we, we know that he's able to direct original scripts and, and create original stories and, and worlds uh, and so th- that's more my disappointment is that Pixar is supposed to be this you know platonic ideal of imagination and w- what's possible and the fact that they've just done so many sequels and, and use their sort of best talent to do so it's just it, it's a little numbing to the Pixar magic you know I don't disagree, but I will reiterate something I've been I've said a few minutes ago and have been saying for the last 14 years. If ever there was a film in the Pixar canon that was just begging for a sequel and logically seemed rife for sequelization was The Incredibles. Because not only does it end on a cliffhanger, but it's also a movie about superheroes and we associate superheroes with comic books, which always have the next issue, right? Yeah. I consider The Incredibles to be the greatest superhero film of all time. You're you're crazy. I'll just throw that out there. I think people forget that the film was nominated for Best Screenplay in 2006. Going back to watch it again recently, I I think it's a fucking masterpiece. I think it's pretty much a perfect superhero film and a perfect animated film, a perfect family comedy, and uh, I think it hasn't aged a day. I was super duper excited for the idea of a sequel, and this was one of my more anticipated films of, of 2018. I had pretty darn high expectations going in last week when I, when I went to go see this. Were those expectations met? Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was fantastic. I okay. really, really enjoyed it. It was the perfect antidote to you know my sort of middling reaction to Infinity War and how much I hated Deadpool and how disappointed I was by Ocean's 8. Like I've really had a rough summer so far at the multiplexes mm-hmm. and Incredibles was just like this beautiful cathartic just like cleansing of the palate. It's clearly inferior to the original which again I think is pretty damn close to a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there was any way this was ever going to be able to match the inventiveness mm-hmm. and the originality of, of the Incredibles and um, I don't know just a really high bar to clear. So I mean I think I went in with extraordinarily high expectations but not so high that I thought it was going to be at that level or God forbid you know an even better film. But I got to say, I, I think it's I think it's really funny. I think it's really touching. I think it's really inventive. I think it's just it's exactly what I want from this family. And and some of the the some of the action sequences in it are some of the best action sequences I've seen in anything animated or live action, maybe since, you know, something like Ghost Protocol. Like I think Brad Bird really <laughs> is is a genius when it comes to these set pieces. It's it's completely obvious why they would have seen, you know, why Paramount would have seen the Incredibles and been like, This guy's never done live action before, but look what he can do with these set pieces. Of course he's the right guy for this job. 
Yeah. Um, the set pieces, that, I mean, that's the number one thing I have in my notes. The, all the set pieces are so much fun and so well choreographed, and the sense of geography is, is terrific, and it's suspenseful and exciting, and the whole nine hours, it's, it's great. And this movie is a delight, start to finish. It's, it's, it's a ton of fun. However, my quibbles are, are, are somewhat small, but I think important. Let's hear them. It's the narrative, right? It's the why for the villains in this movie, and okay. I think the motivations are pretty pretty freaking weak right the whole origin story of like the safe room and the dad and all that stuff doesn't really add up and i never really got a good sense of of why this person is doing what they're doing or even what their sort of end goal is and it's really i mean I, we know the goal is is to get rid of superheroes forever make them illegal although when you really take it out it doesn't make sense to try to legalize them only to make them illegal like she could have done nothing or just stopped her brother from doing anything and it would have been the same right do you want to just sort of like briefly go through like how, how you interpret the motivations of the yeah. quote-unquote antagonist i mean i guess there is only one antagonist although the movie does an interesting thing where it basically gives you this brother and sister team and it kind of is pushing you in the direction of thinking that bob odenkirk is clearly going to be mm-hmm. the antagonist here but then there's that little nagging thing inside you that's saying well, well, then what's Catherine Keener doing here? Like what Catherine mm-hmm. Keener, who, who's playing Lisa Rinna, apparently, because she looks exactly like <laughs> Lisa Rinna. <laughs> she's kind of a little bit on the fringe. And you're like, that's a really big movie star to have in this tiny little role. What's going on here? So I think my little spidey sense was tingling being like, OK, clearly. I mean, I, I think that the reveal of the eventual villain is definitely one of the clumsier things that the film does, because it's not a terribly well kept secret. Yeah, it's not. But her motivation are that her dad had put too much stock in the superheroes and instead of going to their safe room when they were being robbed called the superheroes instead and just waited that sounds right, that sounds yeah. right. i mean i mean the movie the movie just dances right past it yes i mean it basically it just it like it cannot possibly deliver that exposition quickly enough before it moves on to the next thing so yes i completely agree that that is flimsy at best Mm-hmm. And uh, especially coming in the wake of, I think one of the one of the all time great uh, comic book villains in Jason Lee's yes. syndrome from the original, who is like completely fleshed out, mm-hmm. completely interesting, has a very good gripe, is hilarious, and Jason. I mean, I think that Jason Lee performance is just one of the better. Uh, one of the more underrated uh, vocal performances in anima- an animated film ever. So you got a pretty high bar to clear there in terms of coming up with better, a better villain than that. Has Jason Lee been blackballed from Hollywood for being a, like a Scientologist? Is that something that's happened? I think uh, it's yeah. I think it's I think it's a Scientology thing, unfortunately. Because you're exactly right. Like, has that guy fallen off the face of the earth or what? Man, I used to love Jason Lee. I mean, I still love Jason Lee, but it's a shame. <sighs> I mean, again, just go back and watch the original Incredibles, and he is so he's so goddamn dialed in to what's going on with that character. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot has been written or talked about in terms of the film's Ayn Randian, Fountainhead kind of uh, what's what's the term? Um, objectivism, objectivism, or whatever. Yeah, like it, there's there's a lot to be discussed in terms of Brad Bird's politics for sure, which is maybe why some people bristle at the Incredibles. Yeah, um, I know it's not fashionable amongst you know, people our age uh, to embrace Randian, to embrace uh, anything about Ayn Rand or the Fountainhead or God forbid Atlas Shrugged. But uh, I do think that he has a very interesting interpretation of some of those things. I mean, Brad Bird is a famous tyrant, mm-hmm. you know, on set or behind the scenes. Like he's, I think he's kind of a colossal prick, but he's also kind of a 
genius at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I think he's one of those guys that like is allowed to operate at a certain level because he tends to hit it out of the park every single time. And even while he's making his animator's life a living hell, they're also begrudgingly being like, yeah, but he made me better yeah. <laughs> at everything I did, you know? He's J.K. Simmons and Whiplash is what you're saying? Yeah. I, I think that there's something to be to be said for that. Not that I would ever um, support the idea of, you know, tyrannical filmmakers or screamers. But he does seem to get that, you know, somebody like James Cameron is probably another good example of that kind of person. Who yeah. just has such a clear vision idea of exactly how this should all come together and is almost always proven right artistically and financially. Again, like this movie looks great. It's fun. The voice acting's tremendous. Uh, I like a lot of the new characters in it. However, like we've talked about this time and time again, like, one of the most important things of any superhero movie is is the reason for the villain to exist, right? Is whatever their motivations are, whatever their end game is, like it should all make sense. It should all vibe. And and they spent, like you said, so little time discussing why she's doing what she's doing that it's all sort of like I don't know. I didn't really care so much, and I so, so the, the the method for how she is villainizing people, like the the you know the hypnotism thing, the screen slaver, screen slaver. I think that sort of rem- it removes the actual villain uh, from the proceedings to a degree that sort of uh, I don't know isn't as satisfying. You know, when it comes time for the the, the third act. So those are my gripes. My other main one is that I didn't understand Jack-Jack the baby's powers or why there were multiple powers or why any of that was going on. I think, And it felt pretty pretty cheap and multiple deus ex machinas um, throughout the final two acts of the movie. Well, he's very schizophrenic with his powers <laughs> for sure, but I think the idea is that he's just like, he's like every X-Man rolled into one package, right? That, you know, he needs to grow up and develop before he can con- control them. At this point, he just basically has all these powers that just come out randomly. Yeah, but he's got like every power. <laughs> yeah, there might be. And then they invent new ones one, like they get to many. the end of the movie. Yeah. Okay, so you're saying they're like reverse engineering his powers based on whatever the narrative needs are? I think that's part of it. And uh, <laughs> part of it's also just like there are no, um, the rules of the universe aren't really well established and, and why this could be. Or you, you think they'd be making a way bigger deal out of the fact that he can do anything or he's multidimensional, but it's like, oh, he's just a little baby. I, I was sort of disconnected from that whole storyline too because I didn't really understand it. Well, no, I, th- I think what you're saying is valid. I mean, a, a lot of people have been mentioning the fact that the movie starts literally seconds after the original ends. And a lot of people have been speculating about exactly why why that is or what Bird's intentions are with that. And the, the conclusion I've sort of come to is that he wants to be able to tell a story where the children are the same age as they were in the original because basically the original ends with the family now coming together as a crime-fighting unit, right? Mm-hmm. As a superhero team. So instead of flashing forward, you know, five years or 14 years or whatever, he wants to be able to deal with these kids at the same age as we saw them last when they first sort of like embraced their powers and their parents encouraged them to start using their powers. Yeah. And you especially want to be able to deal with the Jack-Jack character before the parents know that he has powers. Those of us who saw the original film and then saw the little short film that accompanied it know what he's capable of, but the family hasn't seen it yet, right? Yeah. I mean, a big part of this film is them discovering that he has those powers. And then, of course, Bob figuring out how to be a father who can handle a child like that. So I think because that's what Bird's interested in, he knew he needed to make a film that literally was like staying on the same timeline as what he'd established with the last film. I know. I I find it so weird that like every single superhero in this movie has a very specific power. 
right? Like one very specific thing that they can do. But the baby has all of the All the power. And they, it just sort of glossed over like this is normal. You know, I don't know. No, that's an interesting point. I mean, he definitely like he does sort of like have a power for every instance. You know, like in a lot of ways, he is the most powerful one. Not in a lot of ways. In every single way, he's, powerful. he's <laughs> okay. clearly the most powerful one. And so you'd think he'd be regarded as some sort of messiah figure or some sort of, you know, sure. like the most powerful. Yeah, he's Juggernaut and Cyclops and all these things <laughs> rolling in one. Pyro and uh, and all that stuff. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. I mean, I think that the movie is sort of like just teetering on the edge of overusing him, relying on him too much. I do think that the raccoon scene is very funny and very clever. Yeah, it's funny um, and very inventive. And the way he's incorporated, you know, the way they use him at the end, I think is a lot of fun too. But I, I agree. I think it's ever so slightly relying a little too heavily on him as this, you know, as a as a kind of a comedic foil. I guarantee it was reverse engineered because, you know, Brad Bird figured out the plot with Elastigirl and knowing that that was going to take her away from the family for a huge portion of the movie, you needed business for, for the rest of the family and this was it. Because it is sort of uh, removed from the, the main villain plot of the movie. Um, and obviously it helps uh, gear up for the, for the you know final half of the movie. But I don't know. I, I, I found that to be a little disappointing just narrative wise um but other than that again like the movie is a a delight and it's a it's a it's a visual feast and the set pieces are tremendous and i liked all the sort of the new characters with their powers and whatnot so uh, great time as spectacular as all the action sequences are though i gotta say i think my favorite part of the movie is is craig t nelson at home with the kids I did not expect to be as into the Mr. Mom stuff as I was. Mm-hmm. And just him, you know, taking the kids out to the diner and Sarah Vowell, you know, like spraying, spraying water out of her nose when she sees mm-hmm. uh, Tony Rodinger, which gets a huge laugh. Like, I just I just was into all that stuff and him, like, trying to learn how to teach his son math and uh, them having to call Samuel Jackson in to assist. Like, all that domestic stuff was really working for me in ways I wasn't expecting it to. Yeah. So, and I'd kind of feel like if you don't nail that, then no amount of crazy fun action is going to band-aid the film. Sure. So I feel like because they nailed, and they did the, you know, they did the same thing in the first film as well. Like some of the most interesting stuff in the first film is all the domestic squabbles and the fact that she thinks he's cheating on her. And I mean, these are really movies kind of like based in the the adult experiences of parents way more than the kids, right? Like yeah. These are these movies are definitely from the perspective of the parents. Yeah, not from the kids, and I think that that's a, that's kind of a bold move on the part of a filmmaker who's making films in a medium that most of us associate with child audiences. Yeah, well, kids are dumb; they'll watch anything. Yeah. The parents, <laughs> I think there's a lot parents have to pay the tickets. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I think all that stuff is great, and I I think again this time around, same with the original film, the performances by Craig T. Nelson and Holly Hunter are so fucking exceptional Mm -hmm. and they are so completely dialed into these characters especially holly hunter who's just like it's incredible that she was never used in an animated film before the incredibles because her voice is really just like it's so incredibly unique and all the stuff she's doing on her mission when she's you know she's sent away to deal with the screen slaver and stuff and then when she gets caught in that crazy box yeah that was the uh, that was one of the the coolest scenes oh my god oh my god i've never seen an animated sequence like that before Mm mm-hmm yeah, you know, like I'm, I, I feel bad if it's giving some people epileptic seizures or anything, but I was spellbound by that. Mm-hmm. And then all the stuff when she's riding around on the on the motorcycle that can split into two, I was just weighing all of it. And I was also thinking the entire time, this has got to be the best quote unquote lit 
animated film ever made, right? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the lighting in it, the, not the camera work, yes, quote unquote camera work, but especially the lighting design. I just never <laughs> seen, and as kind of like a lighting, you know, as a cinematography nerd, I'm just like, this is the best lit animated film I've ever seen before. Just to be clear, you're not saying it's the most like fucking lit. Pixar movie. <laughs> this movie's Ever. totally lit. Yeah. No, the lighting. <laughs> the lighting in it. The contrast ratios and the lens choices and the and of course Michael G. Kino score once again, like, damn are these the scores of these two films are so fucking fun and mm-hmm. jazzy and brassy. I mean it really is like John Barry meets uh Henry Mancini or something. I just I can't get enough of it. Yeah, the music's fantastic. Uh yeah, the, just the whole mood and the whole just feel for the whole for, for the entire movie is uh is it's tremendous. I mean, uh, is, this is a meticulously crafted film, Matt. If I'm ranking Pixar movies of the last 10 years, this is up there near the top. Within the superhero genre, you, you don't have to, especially they've laid the groundwork, like this should have been a, a slam dunk, and it, it more or less is. I'm curious if they're going to keep going with this because they seem like they might be able to. I mean, do you think they should continue making these like once every 10 years for a while? <laughs> yeah, I prefer not to wait another 14 years. Brad Bird's 60. Like, he's not he's not a young man, so. No, but he's still, he's hungry, you know, yeah. and I think he's got more. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, we think of Brad Bird as this incredible animation impresario and uh, incredible director. He's an extraordinary writer. I mean, like I said, he was Oscar nominated for writing this and Ratatouille as well, right? Didn't Ratatouille get a uh, get a screenplay nomination? I I don't know. I think I want to say it did. I mean, he's I just think he's a really really. I mean, he definitely won. He definitely won Oscar animation uh, feature animation Oscars for both. Uh, yeah, Ratatouille was nominated for screenplay. Yeah, I think that they should make a third one of these. I think that they've left themselves uh, a lot of story left to tell. And if the box office receipts are any indication, this is primed to be one of the highest grossing films uh, of the year and one of the highest grossing animated films of all time. I mean, this is already doing finding. Dory style numbers. We're already pushing 500 million, and it's only been a week. Yeah, so it's doing well. I think it did 180 last weekend, which was the biggest ever for an animated film. Pretty good. So, I mean, it seems like the critical responses are pretty much where you are. Like, oh, it's fun. It's not as good as the original. There's problems, you know. But uh, you know, it seems like it's it seems to be right around like you know B B plus level for most critics. Yeah. But the box office numbers are, are staggering. So yeah, I could definitely see them going for three on this thing, which I'm I'm 100 on board for Matt we gotta get to Jurassic Park do you want to uh, rank your top five Pixar movies I have mine written down right here my number one is going to be let's, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. let's start with oh, five, sorry, five. Let, okay. let's each do our fives and then work backwards let's do that okay see the thing is I know what my five are I just struggle with the uh, <laughs> I struggle with the order would you like me to go first and you can, you can yeah if, okay. if you don't mind you guys right, my, my five and this was done with very little foresight here you you uh you told me to do it, and I, I did it. Toy Story 2 would be my number five. Up, number four. Coco, number three. I uh, can't get enough of that movie. I know that's recency bias, but it's so good. No, I love it. Toy Story 3, number two. And then Wally, number one, with a bullet. I'm going Incredibles at number five. Mm-hmm. I'm going Toy Story 2 at number four. Mm-hmm. I'm going Finding Nemo at number three mm-hmm. i'm going toy story three at number two. Oh, the same one good and i'm going wally at number one wow so we got four of the no three of the same five i believe yeah i'd say coco and uh toy story one are probably like my six and seven to, yeah i mean ranking the top 10 you know like they can pretty much be rearranged based on my mood in any given week after that uh they start to fall off pretty pretty fast um all right matt jurassic park fallen kingdom jp colon fk 
JPFK. Yeah, this movie has made already a fuck ton of money. So there's that. J.A. Biona. Yeah, the director of A Monster Calls and The Orphanage, I think. Yeah. Directing a script written by uh, Colin Trevorrow and Derek Connolly, his writing partner, I believe that's his name. Sure. Colin Trevorrow has said in the press that, you know, the third movie in this trilogy is the movie he really wanted to make. <laughs> and so they, you know, he's, he didn't do the second one. Obviously, he had Star Wars uh, potentially happening, even though that's that's gone now. Um, and he had to make these first two to make the third movie. We all know what that means now. He just wanted to make a dinosaurs roaming the world, I guess. Uh, Did you stay for the post credit stinger? I, I didn't. I didn't realize there was going to be one. It's so stupid. <laughs> But I, you know, before I go see a movie, I don't always Google like, is there a post-credit scene for this for this movie? Maybe you should just always stay through the credits, Oscar, and then that way you're always covered. Yeah, you're probably right. I know, I know, I know you're uh, so loyal to the the <laughs> cast and crew of every movie that you have to stay through it. I'm I'm not that way because I don't I don't know any of those people. So well, it says a lot in terms of my stubborn dedication to staying sitting through the credits that even a movie that I was not looking forward to at all and spoilers didn't like mm-hmm. I still sat through the entire credits and was rewarded with a really silly um shot of a pterodactyl sitting on top of the Eiffel Tower <laughs> which is in Las Vegas at the Paris Las Vegas. No, I read about the the post okay, sequence. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So so we're going into Resident Evil extinction territory or whatever here. The next film in this series apparently will take place with dinosaurs in Las Vegas. Yeah, that sounds fun. We both did not like Jurassic World. I would use uh, I might even use the H word about hate, about Jurassic, Jurassic World. World yeah. I I rarely I I rarely drop that word cuz I think it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, considering like some of the more high-profile blockbusters of the last 10 years, I'm hard-pressed to think of one that I disliked more than Jurassic World. It, it hit me on a real visceral level how much I disliked it. That's fair. Um, I also did not like it. Uh, I didn't despise it like you, but it was, it was not a lot of fun and very, very dumb. This movie, I think, is as dumb, but I, I do believe this movie is a lot more fun yeah. and enjoyable to watch than Jurassic World. Would you agree with me there? As dumb, more fun. Let's put that on the poster. Yeah, as dumb, more fun. Because this movie <laughs> is dumb. It is dumb as hell. Yeah, but kind of gleefully so, um, as opposed to the last movie, which was more of a kind of a drag. You know, it was it was not. Uh, it didn't embrace its its silliness like Jurassic Park: Fallen Kingdom. And also, I have to give it to J. A. Biona in this movie. He does shoot some sequences that are suspenseful and have really fun imagery and he, he does more with the with the dinosaurs in this movie than Colin Trevorrow did in, in Jurassic World. Again, I don't want to defend this movie too much, but for a dumb turn-your-brain-off blockbuster movie, it's not bad. And that's as high, as, high a praise as I can give. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Jay Bayona is ten times the director that Colin Trevorrow is, as evidenced by some actually like memorable sequences or mm-hmm. striking imagery here that that the original the original ugh, that Jurassic World didn't have. <laughs> but yeah, I, I lay all of the blame for how stupid this movie, how just inane this movie is, on the feet of uh, Mr. Trevorrow and his writing partner because. They are clearly committed to continuing on the trajectory set forth by the last film. They are clearly not at all motivated by any of the negative reaction. I mean, because that, you know, that movie made a billion dollars. So I don't understand how these are the same guys who wrote uh, Safety Not Guaranteed. This movie is the least funny movie I've seen. Like, there's supposedly comic relief happening in this movie. 
and it is so unfunny. Like, there are no actual jokes going on. Like, Chris Pratt um, has more laugh lines in the first, like, 90 seconds of his appearance in, in Avengers, the last Avengers movie, <laughs> than he does in yeah. this entire film, and he's the main fucking character. And there's an entire comic relief nerd guy character in this movie who says Who doesn't funny. have a single, he doesn't have yeah. a single joke, he doesn't do a single funny thing for the entire movie, even yeah. though that's explicitly his, his utility in this film. The only person who's kind of funny in this movie is Toby Jones, because he's always just kind of funny, I think. <laughs> but like, okay. um, I love I love characters like that because you know that they were just at some point being like, we need to get a Toby Jones type for this role, and then at some point they were like, you know, fuck we it, we could just afford to get Toby Jones. <laughs> Let's just get him in here. You know, mm-hmm. we could throw enough money at him. He's he, he can't not say yes. God, what a a guy who has just excelled at at being a creep for his <laughs> entire career. <laughs> I think the opening sequence is pretty darn good and exciting. I don't think volcanoes actually act like that. They <laughs> like they do in this movie. I'm, I'm no geologist or seismologist or whatever you call these people, but volcanologist is that a thing? <laughs> it is now. Okay, cool. But it leads to some exciting stuff that's going on. I mean, the, the whole diving into the water. There's a there's like a, a long take with swimming. <laughs> That's pretty exciting, getting out of the ball. I think all the stuff on the on the boat, pretty good. It's pretty solid. Um, and then I just sort of respect how batshit crazy like the final act of this movie is. Yeah, it, it really is, um, to use a really um, kind of pretentious term, it is kind of a diptych of a film, right? Yeah. I mean, the first half is about the island, and pretty much the entire second half is a, is a haunted house movie, basically, mm-hmm. uh, which is bold, and I guess that is probably part of the reason that they decided that Biona was the right guy for this kind of job. He's sort of thought of as a haunted house director yeah, because of things like the orphanage. So at least the entire third act all takes place in this crazy, like palatial mansion in, um, in Northern California. And I definitely didn't see that coming. No, um, I don't know if it's good, but at least it's, uh, you know, incorrigible. <laughs> Right, it might not be good. I don't know. It, it, it's well shot, and it's 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 silly, and it, it it's it's a basically a monster movie. You know, they don't really dwell on the story or the narrative too much, like because there's a bunch of shitty, uh, silly stuff happening. But you know what? I I I enjoyed watching this movie as much as I realized that it's pretty dumb. Um, and I could not say the same thing about Jurassic World. It's kind of crazy to me to think that this might be the second best movie in this entire series. <laughs> Oh, don't say things like that. I <laughs> What, you don't agree? No, I don't. I think I think uh I think it goes I think it goes Jurassic Park, then it goes Jurassic Park 3, then it goes this, then it goes Lost World, then it goes Jurassic World. Yeah, okay, I, so I, this is the I, third I think that, I think that ranking is probably accurate. I am a big supporter of Jurassic Park 3. Yeah, I think that that one's super underrated, but it is funny how we're here here we are five movies into this franchise that sort of like nobody really asked for. Mm-hmm. And there's literally just one good movie in this five film franchise that continues to become bigger and bigger seemingly with each passing film. I mean, how, how did we get here? Every time we do another one of these, it, it, to me it just diminishes the legacy of the original Jurassic Park, whose uh, 25th anniversary we just celebrated uh, about two weeks ago. I really feel these movies make that movie worse somehow for me retroactively. <laughs> well, that's I know it's be a the silly case, way then. to go through yeah. life, but it's just like <laughs> I just I have less and less respect for that movie every time another one of these comes along. How is it we haven't been able to? I guess this is clearly an example that this is not a franchise. This is this movie should have just existed as mm-hmm. as its own autonomous entity because we've we've yet to crack the code on how to do how to do another one of these properly. I mean, maybe it's that Spielberg. Although you know what Spielberg. 
made one of the worst films in the series. The Lost World is a whole, it's a bad movie. Yeah, it's really fucking bad. I, I think an argument can be made that it that might be his, if not his worst movie, his second or third worst movie. Yeah, it's it's definitely, a, it's among his four worst movies, I, sure. I would say. And we have our Spielberg podcast series that you can listen to and hear us talk about such things. But Maybe very soon, as a matter of fact. I'm not even the biggest fan of the original Jurassic Park, but I do wonder when this shuts down and it might not because they're making so much fucking money doing this I, I would love to, and this is my dream I would love a rated R remake of the original movie you know I, I would love there to be like a something that f- mostly followed the actual book I'd read a couple of very sort of heavy nonfiction books recently and I was like fuck it, I need a palate cleanser and I knew the stuff was coming up so I reread Jurassic Park Wow. If you stayed true to that book, it would have been so violent, so gory, and so sort of dark. Yeah. For, for Spielberg, for a PG-13 movie, it is still pretty gory. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of stuff going on. But I think you could make it dark, and with the technology nowadays, it, it would be really good. Because that movie is is, is better and self more self-contained than anything that has happened since then. But anyway, getting back to Fallen Kingdom... Uh, favorite shot in the movie, Matt, was the close-up of Bryce Dallas Howard's uh, shoes. <laughs> yeah, they they definitely learned their lesson. <laughs> Something I was struck by with this film that I was struck even harder by with the Jurassic World was not only the fact that Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt have very little chemistry, but that it's almost as if the movie is aggressively trying to make these two characters uncharismatic and uninteresting. <laughs> I mean, they literally have nothing. There is nothing interesting or magnetic about them. Yeah. Not only do I not care about whether they live or die, but I just I feel like I don't know anything about them, nor do I really care to learn anything about them. Did you see that? Yeah. Did you see that sort of Twitter meme that was going around? Someone had posited the question of like Jurassic World, one of the all-time biggest box office yeah, films ever. Fourth biggest film of all time or something yeah and, and the sequels come out and chris pratt's a well-known movie star people know chris pratt how many of you can name chris pratt's character in jurassic world <laughs> yes the <laughs> only reason i know his name is owen is because i've been subjected to that to the goddamn fallen kingdom trailer before every movie over the last three months yeah but the point is like no, the characters in this movie just don't matter and are so poorly written and poorly conceived you know i don't want to blame the actors i mean i think it is really script that lets these people down um and you know the saving grace in this movie is is biona's direction they even try and shoehorn jeff goldblum at one at one point and the trailers would lead you to believe that he's going to be a much bigger part than he is wouldn't it have been delightful if he was though yes absolutely and i'm actually surprised why would you not try to exploit that do you think it was just jeff goldblum's like you got me for one day yeah i want my three million dollars <laughs> like, for one day <laughs> i got one day i'm not I'm, I'm i'm not gonna wear pants to the set so you better put me behind a desk <laughs> doesn't really make that much sense the whole scene either (laughs) plus in terms of timeline in terms of chronology he's like testifying before congress or something Mm -hmm. that sequence actually takes place at the end of the film right well (laughs) yeah that's what's confusing about this because at the beginning how the chronology of that works it it seems like they're still making a decision at the beginning of the movie and then when he's shows up at the end of the movie in the same place it seems like the events of the movie have happened then or maybe the point is that he's presaging like he is so he he understands how this is going to go so well he's already 
made many speeches about it over the course of this franchise that he's basically predicting what's going to event. No, because he's very specific about it. He's though. extremely specific. He about says it. specific things about what has happened and now the this new world order we're living in. Did he change outfits? I wonder if it's we're supposed <laughs> to believe that this is a he has been brought back to testify again after the events. Because at the beginning, it's clearly he's they're making a decision. Or maybe the movie wants you to think that. But in no. reality, we're actually flashing forward. No, no, and it's I, all about. I just don't think it makes time sense. Time being a I just flat think it's circle. Poorly written and it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's just uh, a dumb. It's just it's it's a dumb runner, is what it is. You know what's also dumb, Matt? Um, the supposed sort of moral ethical questions that are being asked in this movie. As, <sighs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. As identified by the the little girl, quote unquote, granddaughter of James Cromwell in this movie, who turns out, spoiler alert. To be a clone of his own daughter, I believe, right? <laughs> yes, I think I think so. Although the movie barely pays lip service to it, and I think I think it thinks that it's being coy, but it's actually just being frustrating. Yeah, and, and this, I mean, Jurassic Park. They, it's based on the question of if you can create something, should you like the power of of, of science and like how you should wield it or whatever, right? Um, and this movie's like main focus of of morality or ethics is is about uh, should you help save something even if it was brought into this earth unnaturally? But it's not very profound and it's not very interesting. The climax of the movie has this little girl basically sentencing, I would assume, lots of innocent people to death <laughs> yes. because she's a clone. And the movie right? plays it. Play the movie plays it up as if it's some kind of victory. Yeah, you know, I mean, the music swells, and you know, she gets this big, you know, passion moment. No, no, no. We've, we're five movies into a franchise that keeps telling us it's a really bad idea when humans come in contact with these animals. <laughs> like, there's a lot of running and screaming and bloodshed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, now you're just letting them loose on the population because she's alive, and they should be too. <sighs> I mean, I guess technically, if you want to give it a, just the slightest amount of benefit of the doubt, she, because she, although does she know, does she know what she is? Does she know? I guess she does. She knows that she's a clone or whatever. She knows how she was created. I mean, we don't know that she knows until she says that, right? I mean, she, there's the one scene of her looking, she just realizes, it, I think is what they're trying to say, because she saw that picture of her mom who looks exactly like her. Or she is the mom. Oh, it's dumb. It's dumb <laughs> it's as fuck. Really dumb. <laughs> Plus, it's like it's it's sort of like an emotional beat from a different movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the movie's like trying really hard to convince you how profound it is in the final moments because it's basically squandered the mm-hmm. you know the last two hours. I, I don't know. I mean, there's just there's there's brief flashes of something interesting or you know shots that are somewhat memorable, but there's really nothing that stayed with me about this particular film. Will I give it the slightest compliment that it is certainly an improvement on the last one and that, you know, gun in my head given the choice, what I'd rather, of the two, I would obviously rather revisit this one? Yeah. Sure. Again, I think this movie's dumb, but I had fun watching. I think the the opening sequence is really good. I think some of the stuff on the on, on the island when it's erupting is, is, is good. A lot of the stuff in the house is pretty good. I like the, the silliness of the dinosaur auction. I mean, it's, it's so <laughs> dumb, but like it's it's great. Uh, and, and I like the sort of the, the final action sequence in the in the museum and then on the roofs. You know, once you realize that there's nothing profound or good, like good movie stuff happening, then you can just let yourself enjoy uh, 
the silliness. Uh, but it's not a good movie, and I am very worried about the Colin Trevorrow-directed sequel to this that will be coming out in a couple years. Yeah, he, he needs it now, right? Like, there's he's going to wrap both arms around that thing because uh, he needs that film to be his career lifeboat at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's weird that a movie that purports to be, like, about dinosaurs finds a volcano much more interesting than the dinosaurs as sort of like a... Mm-hmm. central motivating force in uh, in the second act of the film. It's way more concerned with those helicopter shots of the volcano blowing up. Although, isn't it weird that of previous films that we spent on this island, nobody ever talked about a volcano? I mean, a volcano never came up. We never saw shots of a volcano. Like, this volcano is clearly a problem. It's going to decimate this entire island. And yet, decided to build the park on this island and never even brought the potential danger of this volcano up. No, it's horseshit. I mean, it's just a, it's just a <laughs> lazy screenwriting thing. Like, we need a way... We need a ticking clock to get off the island. And like that that was the yeah, long and short of it. And so that's what they came up with. It's bad. Yeah, we're really having kind of a <clears throat> troubling summer here thus far. I mean, I think I was definitely more into Incredibles 2 than you were. But uh, at this point, we, we've yet to have something kind of like rise to the surface, have we? This is true. We have Sicario coming up. We have Ant-Man and the Wasp, which the early reviews have been pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's exciting. Um, and we have some smaller stuff, you know. Uh, Bo Burnham's eighth grade comes out in a in a couple sure. weeks, I believe. So that should be good. Uh, but I agree with you. Uh, I was a bigger fan of Ocean's Eight than you were. Perhaps I've just had nicely tuned expectations compared to yours. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying I need to uh, do a better job of like. Uh... You have less faith in humanity, Matt. <laughs> are, are you are you getting excited for um, for skyscraper? No, like no, I'm not excited. No, <laughs> no, I'm not excited for that. Who, who's the, who's the woman in that? Uh, Nev Campbell. Nev Campbell. That's right. It was someone cool. Yeah, I'm excited about Nev Campbell in a blockbuster movie again. Have you seen um, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Yet? I have not. I'm very excited to see that this week. Of all the things that are going to happen in movie theaters this summer, that will be one of the little shining beacons in a summer that's otherwise uh, filled with a bunch of forgettable things. All right, Matt. Until next time. This has been We Like Movies. Say goodbye. Goodbye.